Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Every once in a while, you stumble over a name of someone, a star of the past. Open up the books, do a little research, and then wonder why you had never heard of him before. Well, let me introduce you to one of those guys, a baseball Hall of Famer whom, I am quite sure, very few of you listening today have ever heard of. A guy who could hit, hit for power, run, throw, and catch. A true five-tool player who had a career batting average of 321 and led the National League in stolen bases four out of five years. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, may I present to you Kai Kai Kyler. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome again to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Today, the story of a baseball Hall of Famer, Kai Kai Kyler. And joining me in just a moment for a look back at Kai Kai's forgotten career will be Gregory Wolfe a co-director of the Biography Project for Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research. Wolf has written more than 150 biographies about baseball stars of the past. He's documented more than 100 games for Sabre's Game Project, and he has also written and edited several books about baseball for Sabre. Before we get to Kai Kai Kyler, I just want to remind you that Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. Every week, I let all of you know about Audible. It really is a terrific way to get your reading in. And if you sign up for a 30-day free trial, you get a free download. And Audible sends Sports Forgotten Heroes a little something to keep this podcast going. I just finished up listening to Roger Kahn's great book about the Brooklyn Dodgers, The Boys of Summer. There's close to 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Give Audible a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash SportsFH. Also, don't forget to follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFHeroes. Search for our page on Facebook and get the latest news about Sports Forgotten Heroes on our site, SportsFH.com. So, who is Kai Kai Kyler? Well, he broke into baseball with the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1921 at the age of 22 and then bounced up and down with the team's minor league affiliates until finally sticking for good in 1924 when he hit 354 and finished 8th in MVP voting. Over the next 10 years, only twice did Kai Kai fail to hit at least 300. But Kyler found himself mixed in with a few weird issues, including something called 
the ABC affair, which ultimately led to his being traded away from Pittsburgh. He also suffered an injury, and that led to his being benched for a half year, which also played a role in his being traded away from the Pirates and a few other items as well. Kyler played with some of the game's most legendary names, including Pie Trainer, Rogers Hornsby, and the Wainer brothers, Big Poison and Little Poison. And while Kyler was, without a doubt, one of the stars of the day and well-known throughout the sport, his star faded away after he retired from the game. But ultimately, he was elected into baseball's Hall of Fame and joining Sports Forgotten Heroes now. To talk about Kai Kai Kyler is Gregory Wolf. Gregory, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you could be here. Well, Ward, I really appreciate the invitation. I look forward to talking to you. Awesome. So let's start here. Let's start with this. It's a philosophical question. You take a look at the stats that Kyler compiled over the course of his career, 18 seasons, a career batting average of 321. Twice, he led the league in runs scored, including 144 in 1925. He had 26 triples. Four times he led the National League in stolen bases. And his defense, which of course is always overlooked, was as good as anyone. So how does a guy like this get overlooked for the Hall of Fame? Why does it take a guy who retired after the 1938 season 50 years to get elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame? Well, uh, Warren, that's a good question. And I think there are a number of reasons uh, that it took so long. As you know, he was elected in 1968 by the Veterans Committee. And around that time, the Veterans Committee was really going back and looking closely at both dead ball era players as well as players who had played during the 1920s and 1930s. But let's take a look at, at Kyler specifically. Uh, I really have a few reasons why it might have taken him so long, even though during his playing days uh, as an active player, really between, let's say, 1924 and uh, 1936, he was considered one of the best uh, five-tool players in baseball. I'll say number one, uh, one of the first reasons, uh, Kyler was not necessarily the biggest name on his own team. Hmm. First off with the Pirates, as you mentioned, he uh, establishes himself in 1924. The Pirates win the World Series in 1925. Uh, again, they go to the World Series in 1927. But the Pirates in 1925 belonged to Max Carey. Hmm. The Hall of Fame outfielder, center fielder. Mm -hmm. uh, a pie trainer was the third baseman. He was up and coming, a Hall of Famer as well. Uh, and those two players really defined the Pirates, the 1920s, and a pie trainer, the late 19, 1920s and 1930s. Then we go to the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Kyler has traded the Chicago Cubs to begin the 1928 season. Uh, and over the course of his of his um, payday with the Cubs between 1928 and 1934. Uh, the leaders of that team are Rogers Hornsby. He was acquired in 1929 and had mm -hmm. his fabulous season in 1929. Uh, and Hack Wilson, who set 
the RBI mark in 1930. So even on the Cubs, he was an overlooked star on that team. So those are two big reasons. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, uh, Kyler lacks a lot of the markers that were readily associated with the Hall of Fame players. Now, when I say markers, I talk about counting statistics. Now, Kyler only played in about 1,850 games, 1,879. That's not a lot of games. Now, uh, in 2018, that ranks 113th uh, out of all of the Hall of Famers. So he did not play, uh, quite honestly, in many games. Mm -hmm. Um, He was injured a number of uh, seasons. And so he has a career of some really outstanding seasons and then a few injuries, a few outstanding seasons and a few injuries. So he did not play a lot. Uh, He also only had about 7,200 at-bats. That itself is not many, especially when we're talking about uh, dead ball and and players from the 1920s and 1930s when these counting statistics played such a big role. And then finally, he did not have the counting statistics that Hall of Fame voters especially liked. Let's take, for example, uh, home runs or RBIs. Two of the biggest, two of the biggest statistics. Yes, exactly. Home runs, only about 128. RBIs, just over 1,000. Now, let's take uh, let's take into consideration other outfielders who also were elected in the 1960s by the uh, Veterans Committee. I'll start off by Goose Goslin. He was a left fielder, Hall of Famer. He had a big counting statistic, over 1,600 RBIs. Of course, he had won a World Series with the Washington Senators in 24 and later with the Browns in, 19, uh, in 1935. He was likewise elected in 1968 uh, by the Veterans Committee to the Hall of Fame. And maybe one other Hall of Famer, also from the same era of, um, of, of Kyler, and that is Heine Manouche, mm-hmm. player for Detroit and Washington. He had all the markers with RBIs and home runs. And so yeah, a number of reasons, um, markers, RBIs, um, and then he was never the biggest star on his own team, or at least not the person that was readily associated with that team. Interesting. All right. We're going to get more into Kiki or Kai Kai that way. And I did that because explain his name. For those of you listening, his name is spelled K-I-K-I as in Kiki, but it's not pronounced Kiki. Rather, it's pronounced Kai Kai. How did he get that name? And explain the difference in how it's spelled from how it's pronounced. Okay. Well, his his given name is Hazen Shirley uh, Kyler. Hazen, uh, his first name, and I'll mention that in, uh, in contemporary press, both for Pittsburgh and in Chicago and later when he played for Cincinnati, um, the newspapers, the Pittsburgh Press, the Post-Gazette, Chicago Tribune, they typically referred to him as Hazen Kyler. So we have to really think that though today we call him Kai Kai Kyler, the press at the time used his given name Hazen more often than it didn't. So I think that's one thing that's overlooked today by by um, by writers and and by fans of baseball. We we readily think of him as as Kai Kai. That's not necessarily the case. His middle name is Shirley, 
That is the maiden name of his mother. Of course, that's a, an odd name too. Hazen is, is is odd, maybe to the to the contemporary ear, but it wasn't necessarily uh, an incredibly uncommon name uh, at the time that he was born. He was born in 1898. Anyway, his nickname, as you as you rightly said, uh, Kai Kai, probably the most mispronounced or one of the most mispronounced uh, nicknames that I can think of for any baseball player. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two stories that come from this. One story is that during um, his minor league days, and he began minor league ball in 1920, um, his minor league uh, days, that whenever he would hit an infield ball in order to distract his attention, uh, or when he was at bat in order to distract his attention, uh, opposing infielders would yell out, Kai, Kai the first syllable of his last name, as in Kai Kai Kyler. So uh, that doesn't sound uh, far-fetched. That's an easy way to understand his last his, his nickname. Uh, so that's one. Um, another theory that goes out that uh, has been uh, widely disseminated is one that Kyler was a stutterer, hmm. and his name might have been Kyle. Uh, he, he might have pronounced his name Kyler with a stutter. So there are two possible reasons for his his nickname. I'll say that he didn't use the nickname uh, Kai Kai. He used his given name Hazen typically. Ah, interesting. So, all right, we got that figured out. Now, tell me about his game. What kind of ball player was he and how difficult was it for him to finally break through at the major league level? From what I read, I mean, he sort of languished in the minors for an extended period of time, although four or five years doesn't sound all that long. But from what I read, he was ready to come up to the majors long before he was called up. Yeah. Well, maybe a few things. Um, first off, I'll say that Kyler was considered really a prototypical five-tool player. Uh, he hit for average. He has a 321, 321 career batting average. He had power. Now, keep in mind, this is the 1920s and early 1930s. He had a power. He ran especially fast, uh, led, lead, led the National League in, in stolen bases five times, really until serious leg injuries robbed him of his speed. He was an incredible fielder in the outfield, and he threw the ball especially well, always ranked among the league leaders in assists. Mm -hmm. So he was a prototypical five-tool player. Now, if we want to think about with whom he was compared while he played, maybe I'll say a few words to that. Number one, when he came up in 1924, he batted as a rookie 354. Then in the second season in 1925, when he led the Pirates to the World Series, he batted 357, which was second only to Rogers Hornsby uh, of the St. Louis Cardinals. Mm -hmm. uh, Kyler's aggressive batting style was very often uh, compared to uh, Rogers Hornsby at that time. Now, as a fielder and as an overall player, he was very often compared to Joe uh, to Shoeless Joe Jackson, Tris Speaker, and Ty Cobb. 
Those no. are those are some pretty darn good names to be well, compared to. I, I think, of course, uh, 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 maybe a listener today would think that I'm crazy to even say that. I'm not comparing him to those three players. I'm saying that who he's compared to, um, he was really considered that good coming up. No, obviously, he didn't put the career together like Shoeless Joe, Chris Speaker, and Ty Cobb. But I will say uh, just a few things so we really have an under, uh, a good understanding how good uh, he was. Now, a longtime Chicago Cub scout, uh, Larry Doyle, who had signed a number of uh, Chicago Cub stars in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Uh, uh, Jack Doyle is, uh, is his name, Jack Doyle. Jack Doyle called um, Kyler the most graceful player of all time. That's a direct quote uh, from Jack Doyle. Wow. Uh, Jack Doyle furthermore said that Kyler, and I'll quote, could do more things with a glove than Cobb, he could throw better than Cobb, and he could pick up ground balls on his outfield patrol like grounders. Now that's quite high praise from a from a a lifetime baseball scout, mm -hmm. Jack Doyle. So he was really considered um, uh, an exceptional five-tool player. With whom might we compare Kyler today? Well, um, maybe Kirby Puckett could be. A, compar a comparable player, um, Craig Biggio, at least from the offensive side, might be a similar player. And of course, Biggio was a, was an infielder, and Puckett and uh, Kyler was an outfielder. So that might be uh, those might be some comparisons. Another one that might be a good comparison to uh, Kyler uh, was uh, Eno Slaughter. Of course, this great St. Louis Cardinals player from the 1940s and 1950s. But you asked also about Kyler languishing in the minor leagues. Yeah. I don't know if I would characterize it as languishing in the minor leagues, quite honestly. Now, Kyler did not begin playing minor league ball until 1920, and he was 21 years old um, at the time. He uh, began playing semi-pro ball. When he was only 14 years old, he grew up in uh, northern Michigan, northeastern Michigan on Lake Huron in a small town in a very sparsely populated area and didn't begin playing minor league ball until 1920. Um, he was signed by the Pirates at the end of the 1921 season. Now, the Detroit Tigers manager, Ty Cobb, wanted to sign Kyler in 1921, but the Tigers owner, uh, Frank Navin uh, had overruled uh, Cobb at that time. And so the Pirates wound up uh, signing him. And he, uh, Kyler had a look-see with the Pirates at the end of the season in 1921. However, that was a big jump uh, for Kyler. He was playing in a Class B league. Now, we have to think a Class B league jumping all the way to the major leagues that's like a class A or a rookie ball jumping to the major leagues. That's almost impossible. Wow. So we can't really think about that. So that was just his his uh, his first full season in minor league ball. He only played a half season in 1920, a full season in class B in 1921. In 1922, he again played in class B baseball, a full season there, batting around 300, had another look-see at the end of the season uh, in 1922. 
Uh, so that was just his second full season. And in 1923, his third full season in the minor leagues, he played for Nashville. The Nashville Vols uh, in, in the Southern Association. And that was really his breakthrough season. He was uh, the Southern Association's most valuable player. That was a Class A league. Now, keep in mind, there were no Class uh, there were no AAA teams back then. AAA didn't begin until 1946 when the minor leagues were were reorganized. So Class mm-hmm. B was the second highest league, and um, and the Class uh, the the Class A team, uh, the Nashville Volunteers were a good team. Um, Kyler uh, was really the class of the league. He hit 340. He slugged um, over three, uh, slugged over 500 and had a look-see to uh, the Pirates again in 1923 and was uh, back in spring training in 1924 where he made the team permanently. So I wouldn't really call it languishing. We have to think back in the 1920s. After all, there were only 16 major league teams playing in the minor leagues for five and six and seven, even eight years, wasn't out of the question. Kyler was, was still young, 25 years old, when he caught on with the Pirates. I'll also mention that Kyler played typically center field in the minor leagues. And who was the Bucks center fielder in the 1920s? Well, that was none other, none other than Max Carey. Mm. Max Carey was a Hall of Famer. I don't need to remind you about that. He was a 10-time stolen base champion in many ways, considered among the finest center fielders of his day. I'll also mention that the Pirates – Outfielders in in 1923 and 1924 were in fact quite good. You had Carson Digby, who himself was a, a star at the time. Uh, he might be forgotten nowadays, but he was a star. He was a consistent 300 batter. Uh, he was hitting two. He had collected 200 hits. The other outfielder was Clyde Barnhart who was an up-and-coming star. So the Pirates were loaded in the outfield. So we're talking about someone who had two full seasons in Class B baseball, a great year in in in, in uh, Class A, but, my gosh, breaking into an outfield uh, uh, trio of fly chasers who themselves were considered all-stars and, and one Hall of Famer. Maybe the term languish uh, wasn't correct. Maybe, maybe... – I did confuse that a little bit with the fact that he got such a late start at 21. Just yeah. how important, when he finally did make it to the Pirates, how important was Kai Kai to the team? How how good were those Pirates teams? Well, um, he was really, um, he was a catalyst. You know, I'm, I'm always loath to... Uh, compare players from different eras, despite modern sabermetric statistics. I um, I enjoy baseball. I I work uh, closely with with Saber, with the Society for American Baseball Research, uh, for whom I serve as the uh, co-director of our biography pod project, mm-hmm. and have edited ten books uh, for uh, Saber, and have written uh, biography Saber biographies for maybe 150 players. But I'm reticent wow. about comparing players uh, from different eras. I will say that uh, that Kyler was the key player on the 1925 squad. Now, when we think of a five-tool player like Kai Kai, 
with his incredible speed as a base stealer, well, we might think that today he would bat leadoff, quite honestly. He's a, he was a prototypical leadoff hitter. Um, in 1925, he scored 144 runs, which was a then National League record, post-1900 National League record. He scored almost a run a game. Now, he was the catalyst for that team. He also batted third. I think that's a, a very important point. Um, he really enjoyed batting third. Now, we think today that would be a, a strange position for someone like that, uh, for someone like Connor to bat. He would bat first or second, quite honestly, today. But he batted third and was insisted his entire career that he bat third. Now, Why? in 19... 19- um, well, he didn't like batting leadoff. Um, he didn't consider himself a leadoff uh, hitter because of um, uh, because he, he thought that he had power and did have power. Um, he had 26 triples in 1925. Of course, he was playing in Forbes Field, spacious Forbes Field, and hit 18 home runs um, in 1920. That was a considerable amount. Um, he did not like batting leadoff. And at that time, your number two hitter was really considered your bunter. He would be sacrificing. So at that time, the number two hitter was completely different than what we think of a number two hitter today. The number two hitter would sacrifice uh, you over um, and uh, lay a bunt down for the leadoff hitter to to move from first to second or second to third. So that uh, number two hitter was a different kind of position back during Kyler's day. And he looked at himself as as really a prototypical a uh, three hitter in 1925 uh, when the pirates won uh, the world series um he was a catalyst um had rogers hornsby not had hit his fabulous season in 1925 leading the uh, leading the nl in, in batting uh kyler probably would have won the mvp he was the runner up uh of the M- for the mvp in right. 1925 um and in the world series in 1925, Kyler simply had um, an outstanding, in many ways, um, career-defining World Series. That year, they played the Washington Senators. The Senators still led by, at that point, the elderly Walter Johnson. Walt Walter Johnson. Walter Johnson was on the tail end of his career. They had also gotten a uh, Stan Kovaleski um, in nine, uh, for for that season. They both won 20 games and. Um, it was really a toss-up. The Senators were coming off World Series Championship in 24, and um, it was a toss-up. Now, the Pirates started off, they had home field advantage, and they played the first two games in Pittsburgh. Um, and Kyler, after the Senators won the first game, 4-1 behind Walter Johnson's um, excellent performance, um, many thought, well, though the Senators might run the table. Um, and in fact, uh, pitching uh, uh, batting against Stan Kovaleski, Kiki hit um, an eighth-inning home run. It was a two-run eighth-inning home run to give the Pirates the lead and the victory. That was a, um, in many ways, complete turnaround uh, for the World Series. So it moved to Washington in game for game three, uh, four, and five. The Senators won uh, games three and game four. 
putting the Pirates in a 3-1 hole, and the Pirates came back to win the next three games, the final two in Pittsburgh. And in many ways, uh, Game 7 was considered an instant classic. I'm always reluctant to use a word like a phrase like one of the greatest games in, in baseball history, sure. World Series history. But I will say, if you read contemporary accounts from the New York Times, from national columnists from the New York Times, or uh, from the, uh, from Pirates columnists, from the, the Post, the press, um, uh, it really was uh, an amazing game. Um, in that game, Walter Johnson started. He's starting his third game. He, he, he beat the Pirates in game four on a shutout. He's starting game three, short rest, uh, pitching four days later. So really only three full days of rest. Uh, and uh, the weather conditions are terrible. It's rainy. Um, it's cold. Um, Walter Johnson doesn't have his best stuff. And uh, Kyler, what does he do? He hits in the late part of the game in the eighth inning. The score is tied uh, 7-7. And Kyler hits a deep ball to a uh, right field. Now, this ball looked like it was a home run. Many people thought it was a home run. But, in fact, it was it was uh, considered a ground rule double. The ball was lost and got lodged um, in some kind of tarpaulin in the outfield. Hmm. That was a ground rule double. Carson hmm. Bigby um, and Moore both scored. Eddie Moore and Carson Bigby scored to give the Pirates – not, this was with two outs, mind you, two outs in uh, the eighth inning. He hits this epic home run for the Pirates. Um, had it not been for Mazeroski's Game 7 home run to give the Pirates the World Series victory over the New York Yankees, one would say this is maybe the biggest home run in Pirates history. It won the World Series. And, of course, uh, the Pirates come out. A little-used reliever, Red Oldham. Pitches a one-two-three inning, and the Pirates win the game and the World Series. Uh, two game-winning uh, hits, a home run and a ground rule double. Um, it was it was it was remarkable. That's great stuff, Gregory. And it brings me to this: I consider myself to be a uh, a fan of all sports. Uh, pretty knowledgeable. I don't know everything for sure. That's why I talk to guys like you. Um, but the title of my podcast is Sports Forgotten Heroes. And as I research for different players to talk about from all the different sports, I'm going through the Baseball Hall of Fame and I see Kai Kai Kyler. And I'm going, geez, you know, I am not familiar with Kai Kai at all. What about Pirates fans? Obviously, you're a Pirates fan, and when you look back at the history of the Pittsburgh Pirates, the names that immediately come to mind are guys like Clemente, you just said it, Mazeroski, Stargell, Parker, Paul Wehner. Do Pirate fans ever speak of Kyler? Do they even know who he was? Well, let me add Big Poison and Little Poison, the Lloyd bra. The Wainer brothers and, and Honus Wagner and Pi Trainer to that list too, and Max Carey and Archie Vaughn. Um, um, Warren, I'll say that Pirates fans probably don't know who he is. Interesting. And I'll give you maybe a reason. Now, 
the reasons that I've given for why he might not be, you know, a, a well-known player or might not be known that well in, in Pittsburgh or even here in Chicago um, might be overlooked. These are just my, my suggestions. Maybe some other baseball historian has another idea. So after 1925, um, Kyler, he is one of the biggest stars in baseball. You know, we've, we've looked at his statistics. He only plays for the, Pir- for the Pirates for two more seasons. And both of these seasons were among the most controversial and strangest in Pirates history. And I think in many ways, these two seasons um, affected Kyler's reputation in Pittsburgh, and at least his recognition in Pittsburgh. 1926 um, might be the most disappointing season in Pirates history. They brought back the entire team that won the World Series in 1925, and many thought that they would win the World Series again. They had an incredible uh, pitching staff, Lee Meadows, Ray Kramer, Vic Aldridge, Johnny Morrison, uh, Emil Eady. Uh, they had all these hitters on the team. Uh, Kyle, uh, Kyler was just 26 years old, but the team uh, playing for uh, Bill McKechnie, a, a Hall of Fame manager and one of the greatest managers in baseball history for that matter, the Deacon. The 1926 Pirates were mired in a funk, and that funk soon uh, evolved, or maybe better put, devolved in a major controversy. And the controversy today is called the ABC controversy. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, the ABC yeah. affair. Well, I need to back up just a little bit and say that the owner of the Pirates was named Barney Dreyfus. Barney Dreyfus was a German-born um, industrial magnate and uh, a very important uh, and influential in National League history in the teens and in the 1920s. Now, Dreyfus was also known, um, whether whether it's a, a well-deserved reputation or not, um, as a miserly owner who was very, uh, I would say, um, stringent with his with the salaries and that salary, um, uh, his salary uh, offers led to a lot of squabbles and, and, and quite honestly, problems with the pirates, even Honus Wagner, when he retired after the 1916 season, um, um, many said he retired because he rejected a, uh, an offer, a contract offer from Dreyfus when Dreyfus was beginning what, what, what was then called salary retrenchment after the failure of the federal league um, after the 1915 season hmm. and salaries were being uh, uh, constricted. Now, uh, Dreyfus went out of the country in 1926. And during this time, um, a longtime pirate uh, player and well-known former manager, Fred Clark, who was uh, in the Pirates' front office at this time, began to sit in the Pirates' dugout on the bench in street clothes. Now, mm. players in the 1920s would not have would not have played, in the mid-1920s anyway, would not have played with uh, Fred Clark. As I said, he himself 
was a Hall of Famer and a longtime player manager for the Pirates. Now, sitting in the dugout in uh, a suit rubbed the Pirates, many Pirate players, the wrong way, and specifically three players. Babe Adams, who did play with Fred Clark, Babe Adams at that point was around 40 years old, um, and a well-known pitcher in his own right. He was a star pitcher uh, for the Pirates for a long time. That's A. B is for Carson Bigby. As I mentioned, he himself was a, a, a budding star at the time um, uh, when, when, when uh, Kyler came up. And the third player was none other than Max Carey, who was on the tail end of his Hall of Fame career. Now, you have two older players, Carey and Adams, who knew Clark well, and uh, a somewhat middle-aged player as far as baseball years go, um, and that's Carson Bigby. They especially did not like this, and it devolved into a controversy uh, where they confronted Clark, and it blew out of proportion, and what happened eventually was all three of these players were eventually uh, either traded or put on waivers. This led to ba- this led to basically, and this was near the end of the season in August, and this led to practically open revolt among the Pirates players. McKechnie was said to have lost the team at this point, and the Pirates considered the front runners to win the World Series in 1926 had. A disappointing season. They finished in third place. Yeah, of course, the St. Louis Cardinals won the pennant under player manager Rogers Hornsby in that season in 1926. It was um, a flabbergasting season. And it had a long-lasting effect on Kai Kai, did it not? Because the following season, I mean, well, was he temperamental? What kind of effect did, did the ABC affair have on Kai Kai? Kai Kai was having his normal season, normal season, meaning that he was batting in his three, um, in the mid 300s. But in the late season, he slumped also badly and was batting well under 300, if I remember correctly, maybe in the 200, uh, 280s or so, 270s, mm-hmm. over six or seven weeks of the season. Now, in my biography uh, that I wrote of, of, of Kyler, for uh, Sabre, um, I uncovered some uh, references in Pittsburgh newspapers that the sports writers at the time really attributed his slump, his late season slump, to the effects of, of, the, of the ABC affair. He was not uh, necessarily um, one of the, the rabble rousers in this affair, not at all. And he ended the season uh, batting 320. He led the league the National League again in in runs with 113, and he led the league in stolen bases for the first time, the first of four seasons, the first of four times in in the next five seasons. So in many ways, we could we could say that he had um, a, a great season. It wasn't as good as the last as his first two seasons, but he slumped at the end of the season. Now you mentioned 1927. Yeah. So what happened? So what happened in 1927? And did did the ABC affair have an effect on a long lasting effect on Kai Kai? Because they only played in 85 games. Yeah. Well, the ABC affair did not have a direct affair on Kyler in 1927. 
Rather, the situation was something completely different. I'll start by saying that the manager, Bill, Bill McKechnie, was considered really a player's manager, one of the most beloved managers um, really in baseball history. A player's manager, not a disciplinarian. And many said he should have disciplined um, the ABC players, um, and he didn't, at least not to the way that they that many thought, at least Dreyfus and Fred Clark thought he should have. So it was a foregone conclusion that McKechnie was out at the end of the 1926 season. He was replaced by Donnie Bush. Donnie Bush was a disciplinarian. For, this was replaced for the 1927 season. And one of the first things that Donnie Bush decided to do was, you can imagine it, he decided he is going to institute a much more disciplined group. Now, Kyler, uh, from all accounts, chafed under Donnie Bush's uh, leadership, at least his leadership's, leadership style. Now, why did they perhaps um, tangle right at the beginning of 1927? Well, early in the season, Kyler suffers an injury. He tears ligaments sliding, tears ligaments in his ankle uh, on a slide, and he misses six weeks. Um, this is the first of really four serious injuries that plague Kyler, three of which are leg injuries, um, which um, really by the mid-1930s rob Kyler of, of, his, mm -hmm. of his great speed. Now, so he comes back six weeks after tearing ligaments in his ankle. He comes back. What happens? He, in early August, gets into a controversy with Donnie Bush uh, for his play. And he's fined when he doesn't slide into second base. Now, we could really take two different approaches here. Sure. We could say that, well, um, he was going to be out. He's trying to protect his, 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 his ankle. And um, he was playing it safe. Well, Bush is an old school manager. Maybe Bush's approach was, it doesn't matter whether it looks like you're safe. Take out, uh, take out the fielder. Slide aggressively. Old school dead ball player. Dead ball. Uh, grew up in the dead ball era. Uh, wanted that kind of play. That's not what happened. And in one of the most mysterious decisions in Pirates history, Kyler, a catalyst for the team, was benched. And he wasn't just benched. He was benched for the rest of the season. I, I read that. I can't believe that. Now, it is remarkable to think that you have a player of Kyler's potential, a leader of the team, who would literally be benched in early August for the remainder of the season. But that is, in fact, what happens. And the World Series. He's benched also for the World Series. Now, the Pirates win the pennant again. They're second in three years. Now, of course, they're going to face the murderer's row of the New York Yankees. And they're eventually swept four games to zero. In what I might add was a more, um, it was um, a more competitive World Series than many remember. It wasn't a, a complete a dominant stomping of the Pirates by the Yankees. But Kyler is 
is uh, benched for for um, after this game, August 6th, benched for the remainder of the season. He only starts one more game the entire season, has about a dozen uh, appearances, uh, maybe not even that many, maybe around 10 appearances, and only starts one more game the rest of the season, doesn't at all play in the World Series. It's astonishing. Now, um, you know, you know Gregory, of... Gregory, you couldn't even get away with that today. There's just no, no way possible. Now, um, imagine, um, pick a star player today, uh, name your star player. They all go through, uh, all players go through uh, a situation where they might not run out of, uh, uh, a grounder to first. Uh, they might not run out, uh, you know, as an outfielder, they might not... Um, goes fast, fly ball, but but uh, slide to second. I don't think anyone would be disciplined for that, quite honestly, today uh, because of injuries. But imagine a player like, uh, I, I'm reticent to say a player, but a star player for any team to be benched for the remainder of the season and then for the World Series. One of your best players and one of the best players in all of baseball. Let me just add that this is still a mystery in baseball, what the precise situation was. Now, there's a lot of conjecture. And of course, if you read the New York, if you read the Pittsburgh newspapers, beginning August 7th through the remainder of the season, the World Series, and in the offseason, uh, that was a big discussion. Kyler's benching overshadowed the World Series um, in Pittsburgh. That was the number one discussion in the newspapers. Why was he benched? No, there was a lot of conjecture. Um, was it was it um, uh, what was it maybe a, a remnant of the ABC affair that Dreyfus supported uh, uh, Donnie Bush's disciplining of a player of this magnitude? Was it um, an attempt to make sure that he establish uh, his discipline and control over the team. No one knows. I'll also say that uh, Kyler never publicly gave reasons for the benching during his playing days, or as far as I know, after his playing days, nor did Donnie Bush, nor did uh, Dreyfus. To think that a guy like Kai Kai could be benched like he was is just incredible. I mean, the guy was a hitting machine who could have possibly helped the Pirates win the 1927 World Series. But we'll never know. So just what kind of a hitter was he? Well, in addition to what Wolf has told us so far, here are a few other nuggets. In 1926... He hit 321, led the NL in runs scored with 113, and this is after he set a Pirates team record that still stands today with 144 runs scored in 1925, led the NL in stolen bases with 35, and check out these numbers from 1926 too. He hit for the cycle against the Phillies in a 16-3 drubbing of Philadelphia, he belted two homers against Brooklyn and drove in a career-high six runs and scored five runs in a 21-5 shellacking of Brooklyn. 
And at one point, he had 10 consecutive hits and 14 hits in 16 at-bats. Also, going back to 1925, Kyler set the Pirates' record with 369 total bases and posted an OPS of 1.021. Yet, by not sliding into second base and the ABC affair, Kyler found himself heading west to Chicago. One more thing. Um, there was some conjecture that um, uh, uh, this, 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 uh, this controversy in his benching, it really did damage uh, Kyler's reputation. It really did damage it. Now, he rehabilitated that reputation when he was traded to the Cubs in the offseason. But many, uh, many around baseball uh, were miffed by the by the um, by the benching, and with the rumor mill, of course, churned out by by uh, uh, Dreyfus or sports writers or even Donnie Bush. Um, what you heard was, well, uh, Kyler is an egotistical player. He's only concerned about his own statistics. He's only concerned about his own health. He doesn't want to injure himself. So this kind of that kind of spin that the Pirates and some sports writers put on um, really affected his um, his stock in the offseason. Hmm. It's really he, he's traded to the offseason to the Chicago Cubs um, for Sparky Adams, a second baseman and a very durable, good second baseman. But many thought this was a remarkable fleecing of the Pittsburgh Pirates by um, by the Chicago Cubs. Now, before before we get to the Cubs, I have one more thing I want to talk to you about with with Kai Kai and the Pirates. I read where he once hit two inside the park home runs in one game. One game. And it was in a really small park to top it all off, Baker Field in Philadelphia. Overall, he had something like eight inside the park home runs in one season, 1925. So how fast was he? How good a base runner was he? And why was he able to hit so many inside the park home runs? Of course, uh, we think of what happened and and, uh, hitting the home runs uh, against the Phillies uh, in old Scheib. Well, uh, that's that's uh, that's difficult to uh, to to think about or why why he hit the home run or why he hit the uh, ground rule uh, the inside the park home runs. I mean, there could have been a situation the ball took a strange bounce, the ball bounced off an outfielder, um, anything like that. But maybe the, the, the a better way to approach this, at least for me, is how good of a base runner was uh, right. was kind of. Now we already said that he was really considered one of the best base stealers um, during his early career. He was mentored by uh, the best base stealer in the National League, uh, Max Carey. Um, as a rookie, uh, he came up, he stole 32 bases uh, as a rookie, then a 41 in his second year, uh, led the league in 1926 with 35 uh, stolen bases. He was really considered a prototypical um, base stealer. Now, not just a base dealer, but he was considered a daring base leader. Now, anyone who looks at his statistics on baseballref.com or retro might also say, well, you know, he hit a lot of uh, triples as well. Maybe he was really fast. Well, 
number one, he was also fast. Um, but he also played in Forbes Field, and we all know how big Forbes Field was. The outfield, um, center field, uh, uh, power alleys in center field, my gosh, they were over 450 feet. Wow. Uh, so he hit a lot of home runs. He was a daring baby who never, um, who never shied away from taking an extra base. So he really was um, a, a, a daring base runner. And, and and I mentioned uh, his, you mentioned his his um, his his ground his, his uh, inside the poke home runs. I think I said shy, but of course that's Baker. Right. Uh, the Baker Bowl, um, the Baker Bowl was really one of the smallest parks um, uh, in baseball. I mean, if you look at the uh, look at the the team, uh, the Phillies as as a team often batted three hundred. At the same time, they had ERAs over five. So the Baker Bowl was a pillbox. Um, park so um yeah that's how i would approach kyler as a base runner simply daring and i would say a daring base runner like roberto clemente as well roberto was not a base theater yet he was an aggressive base runner i could say that chris bryant today for the chicago cubs is considered among the best base runners in baseball hmm. he is not a base dealer, but he's an aggressive base runner. And that aggressive style uh, from Kyler could be seen on um, the his his run scored. Of course, he played for some uh, high-octane, offensively prodigious, prodigious baseball teams, but he was simply an aggressive base runner. So he leaves Pittsburgh and goes to Chicago. The Cubs manager, I think at the time, was Joe McCarthy, and he's ecstatic to have Kai Kai on the Cubs and, and thought that with Kai Kai, along with Rig Stevenson and Hack Wilson, they would form the best hitting outfield in the National League. But it wasn't to be. Kai Kai got hurt in spring training. What happened? And, and even though we didn't miss any time, how did it affect his game and how did it affect the Cubs' chance to win the pennant? Well, I'll, I'll maybe think of two things uh, of that season. And it was, in many ways, uh, an unfortunate season for, for Kyler. And you're right, he's traded to the Cubs um, in 1928. Uh, the Chicago Tribune called it an amazing steal for the, for the Cubs. And conversely, the Pirates, uh, the Pittsburgh Press called it a, a fleecing um, of their team. Now, in 1928, Kyler injures his hand in an exhibition game in Kansas City. Uh, fielding the ball, he runs into the into a wall uh, facing uh, a Kansas, uh, Kansas City Blues, a minor league team that's a double-A team. There were, as I mentioned, there were no triple-A teams at that point. Um, and he injures his hand, and that injury to his hand affects him the entire season. Um, he crashes into this wall. He has a difficult time gripping the bat for the remainder of the season. Hmm. And he only bats 285. Um, he steals 37 bases, um, but he only bats 285. Now, I'll mention that that was his age 29 season. So he's in his prime. In 1927, he's uh, a year younger. He's 28 years old. In these two prime seasons, he only plays about 220 games so, so he really loses a lot of time he misses uh, almost half the season in 27 with the benching in 19, 1928 he doesn't miss the season but he's injured he's injured uh, 
his hand is injured for the entire season. Hmm. So that unfortunate um, in 1928. Um, but I think the key uh, for the Cubs is the next year in 1929. Yeah, let me ask you something, because in 27, in 27, the Yankees had their famous murderer's row. Didn't mm-hmm. the Cubs label or somebody labeled the 29 Cubs as having their own version of murderer's row? Yes, they did. In fact, uh, the Chicago newspapers called um, this a, a quartet of Cubs murderer's row. Of course, uh yeah, that moniker was used at the time, so it's probably not the best, but it was used. I think I also <laughs> mentioned that um, in my in a biography. Uh, let me just uh, I'll talk a little bit about that this quartet of hurlers. Sure. Uh, the Cubs again uh, have an, an amazing acquisition. They acquire Rogers Hornsby, um, the best hitter in the National League, but also one of the most volatile personalities. He wears out his he wears out his welcome um, in Boston. He played for the Boston Braves in 1928. He only was there for one season. Wore out his welcome after being in New York with the Giants for just one season. So in 1929, uh, the Raja is in his is playing for his fourth team in four years. Now, wow. this was somebody who, by all accounts, was a teammate whom you did not want to cross or probably quite honestly didn't necessarily want to talk to unless you were at the horse tracks. He was a noted a horse <laughs> you know, fan of the horse races. <laughs> in, in 1929, you have a quartet of, of, of hitters for the, the, the Cubs. Kyler batting third, Hornsby at fourth, Hack Wilson, whom they had acquired a few years earlier, is batting fifth. And Rig Stevenson, whom I might argue is the most unknown player in baseball history who has a career 336 batting average. How is but, that possible? I got to interrupt again. How is it possible that guys like that are forgotten and just not known? Well, uh, if, I, if, I, if I'm allowed a short digression about Rig Stevenson. Yes. Rig Stevenson might be considered one of the worst fielders in uh, of his generation. Now he played, he came up uh, with the Indians uh, in the early 1920s. He was a baseball star um, at the university of Alabama. He was a football star as well, a hard nose, uh, a hard nose uh, running back. And after just five seasons with Cleveland, Batting 337, he was traded to the minor a minor league team. Because his fielding was that bad? Because his fielding was so bad. They tried him out at many different positions. They came up as an infielder, second and third, then moved him to right field. He never found a position. And Tris Speaker, uh, uh, we know how good Tris Speaker was, Hall of Famer, my gosh, um, manager player manager and the manager of the Indians simply had enough and jettisoned a player who was batting career 337 incomprehensible today. <laughs> of course, he would simply be traded to a, a, an American league team and he would bat 400. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, later he likewise, um, 
he was 29 years old in 1927, his first season for the Cubs. And, um, you know, he put up batting averages, 340, 360, 360. Um, but he also suffered some uh, very debilitating injuries. He himself only played in 1,300 games. So he had, a, you know, mm-hmm. had some leftover injuries from his football career. He batted six. We we could really say they might be, um, you know, uh, one of the, the greatest quartets in baseball history, at least in the National League and definitely for the for um, for the Chicago Cubs. Together, they batted well over 100, 100 home runs. They knocked in over 500 runs and they scored almost 500 runs. Now, the outfield uh, consisted of uh, center fielder Pat Wilson. Uh, I think it might be funny when we think of Hack Wilson as a center fielder. Mm-hmm. You know, Hack Wilson was only around five foot six, weighed 200 pounds, and had his, his famous size six or size six and a half shoe, but he was a center fielder. And of course, his errors in the 1929 World Series are uh, live on in infamy, uh, at least in Chicago. Rick Stevenson, he was uh, hidden away in left field, and, and um, Kyler played right field. Kyler could play all outfield positions, came up, as I mentioned, a center fielder, uh, right field. He had an amazing arm. Maybe uh, maybe he, he felt more comfortable in right field, uh, but I'm not sure. But he had amazing uh, arm in right field. And he, again, later played center field after Wilson was traded. Um, but that, that group of, uh, of players, uh, they were great. The Cubs, uh, that was a fantastic team. The Cubs ran. Uh, the Cubs won uh, the pennant uh, in in in, uh, in 1929. Uh, they ran away with the pennant, for that matter. Um, they were up by by double digits by mid-August, um, and simply were a fantastic team. Now they had they they slumped near the end of the season. I'll say that they slumped in the end of the season near the end of the season, um, and played about 500 ball their last 20 games now why did they slump who knows they were up as i mentioned uh uh by almost 15 games by the end of august but they slumped over the last 20 games um and and they limped into the world series now people often say well why didn't the cubs win uh they want why didn't they win the world series no they won pennants in, in 29 and 32 35 38 and again in 1945 they lost all world, all four, all five, all five of those World Series, but let me just say, the Cubs simply were not the better team. Um, and in 1929, as good as the Cubs were, and I, I always thought they might have been the most balanced Chicago team until the Cubs finally exercised World Series demons and won it all in 2016. Um, they simply were were outmatched uh, against uh, against the New York uh, against the the athletics the York, against the Philadelphia A's. Now the Philadelphia A's, well, uh, that itself was a dynasty. Connie Mack's Philadelphia A's in 1929 and 1930 and 1931 were three of the best teams in baseball history. One could make an argument, and many have, and in Sabre, I know we like to make these kind of arguments, that the 1929 to 1931 Philadelphia A's were 
maybe three of the best consecutive teams in baseball history. Now they won 104 games in 1929. They were 104 and 46. They were favored to win the World Series in 1929. And in fact, they did. I mean, that team was led by uh, by uh, uh, by their own group of Hall of Famers, Cochran and Jimmy Fox and Al Simmons and, and Lefty Grove. George Earnshaw was a, was a hoss at that time as a pitcher. I think he led the team in, in victories with 24. Um, so that was a team, and, and they, they deserved to win. They won in, in, in five. Uh, it might not have been um, a, a complete rollover like it appears today, four games to one. Look, you know, looks to a modern viewer that it was a rollover, but maybe just a few words about their World Series. Now, the Philadelphia A's won the first two games in Chicago. Uh, the first one was a was a was a famous game in, in in World Series history. Anyway, Connie Mack, who was well known for playing his cards very close to his vest, had, as I mentioned, 20 game winners, Lefty Grove, and and um, and George Earnshaw. Also, Rube uh, Wahlberg, I believe he won 18 games that season, but he did not start any of those pitchers, together of whom uh, won over 60 games. Wow. In instead, he he has one of the great, great uh, tricks up his sleeve in baseball, and he starts Howard Emka. Howard Emke. Some say Emka, some say Emke. Emke is an American pronunciation. Emke is a, uh, uh, comes from a family of, of, uh, of, of uh, German immigrants. Um, Howard Emke himself was a, was a very sturdy uh, pitcher in the, in the mid-1920s. He played for Detroit and Boston. Um, he was a submariner. And uh, the, 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 the Philadelphia A's had acquired him in 1929. He only made eight starts all season. But he had one big one in the postseason. Mack starts him in the World Series game one. Why? Well, starts him because of that submariner delivery. The idea is to completely get the, the Cubs off guard. And it did. He strikes out a World Series record. 13 batters at that wow. time, the World Series record, 13 batters. Um, he tossed the, uh, a 3-1 victory. Uh, Cubs, he scatters eight, eight hits, and the Cubs win. So that's a, a big win, a close a close game, but a big win. The, the, the A's blow out the Cubs in, in, in game two. But the Cubs come back and win game three. You meant that, that, the, you meant that the A's won game one. Yeah, the A's won game one. And the A's come back. The A's win game two as well. So they go up 2-0 um, in the World Series. And the Cubs come back and win game three in Philadelphia. Guy Bush, uh, you talk about other uh, overlooked players. Guy Bush is one, a very consistent hurler in the 1920s and early part of the 1930s for the Cubs, later for the Pirates. Uh, he tosses a complete game uh, and wins uh, game three. Game four, an infamous game in World Series history. You know what happened in that game. The Cubs are up 8-0 in Philadelphia at Shide Park. <laughs> They're up 8-0. 
what happens? The A's score a then uh, record 10 runs in the bottom of the eighth. Uh, two very important errors contribute to this uh, uh, floodgates. Um, and I think, uh, oh, well, that's really it. Uh, the A's win game four, uh, game five, two days later, uh, the A's win again. The World Series is over. Just a quick side note about the athletics. After playing in Philadelphia, they moved on to Kansas City where they just didn't do well. In fact, the A's arrived in Kansas City in 1955 and played there through the 1967 season and never once did they finish a season at 500 or above. But what few might realize only the New York Yankees have won more consecutive World Series. Twice, the Athletics won back-to-back World Series while playing in Philadelphia, 1910 and 1911, and they won a third in four years in 1913 before losing in the series in 1914. The Athletics won again in 1929 and 1930 before losing in the World Series in 1931. Now, After leaving Kansas City, the A's put together one of the most colorful and successful teams of all time and won three straight World Series championships, 1972, 1973, and 1974. Only the Yankees have ever won at least three World Series in a row. And of course, they've done that three times. How popular a guy was Kai Kai at the time, and how well-known throughout the baseball world was he? I mean, did the fans know who Kai Kai was? We we talk about today that the Pittsburgh fans and maybe even the Cubs fans don't know a whole lot about Kai Kai Kyler, but back in the day, I mean, with all the names that we've been talking about and, you know, the Yankees, Murderer's Row Yankees, how popular a guy was Kai Kai Kyler back in his day? Yeah, even today when you walk into Wrigley Field and you see the banners of famous players um, along the the concourse, I would imagine people look at something and say, Kai Kai Kyler, they probably say Kiki, Kiki Kyler, who could that be? Um, um, But during his... During his uh, career, I'll venture to say that he was one of the most popular players, not just for the Pirates, but also for the Cubs. At least that's how he was portrayed in contemporary press. Now, there might be many reasons for that. Uh, If we think of baseball in the 1920s and 1930s, well, um, many players uh, were considered uncouth. They were hard-nosed rabble-rousers. We think of uh, maybe the Gas House Gang players for the St. Louis Cardinals. These were rough-and-tumble players. They lived hard. They partied hard. Kyler was considered one of the game's gentlemen, uh, a very classy individual. Other direct quotes were that he was considered a fashion plate. He was a good-looking player. If you look at uh, images of, of Kyler either in his uniform or in his street clothes, one of the things that immediately draws my attention are his eyes. He had riveting dark eyes. 
very uh, riveting. Your, your, your attention is really drawn to his riveting eyes. Um, he was a good-looking guy. He had uh, dark complexion, dark hair. He wasn't big, maybe about 5'10", uh, 180. Um, he was lithe. He was athletic. He was in shape. Yeah, he um, played. He played basketball. He de- he was mm-hmm. a dancer. He was a singer. This guy had a. He, he was like a, a complete package. Uh, he was. Um, so he was uh, really. The, he didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He was really a, a, a gentleman's gentleman. And as you just said, um, he was a Renaissance man in many ways. Um, you're right. He loved to sing. Uh, he was a well-known dancer. Uh, he even performed on, on, on in vaudeville in Chicago in 1930. Um, if you look at images, he uh, he dressed impeccably, always seen around uh, town. He lived on the north side of Chicago, where the not far from where the uh, where Wrigley Field is, and uh, he was married, had two children. Uh, you can uh, a cursory search on Google. I'm sure would even produce some images that he had with his with his children. Was a good looking, must have been a good looking uh, guy, uh, but he was not one of these rabble rousing bachelors who hmm. uh, lived the hard hard the high hard life. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, you mentioned his sports. Um, he was um, a novelty at the time, insofar as he played sports year round. Now, maybe year-round uh, training. Oh, well, that's that's even new. That's even uh, something of a novelty in the 1960s, quite honestly, uh, Warren. But um, Kyler was um, uh, he had played basketball in high school and was a, a fan of basketball. He played in professional and semi-professional basketball leagues, hmm. especially in the 1920s and early 1930s, before his injuries really sapped that. And he was a big. Uh, uh, he played on, on on basketball barnstorming teams. He was an early advocate of basketball and year-round training. So in many ways, he was a very cutting edge. Let me ask you this: When his playing days were over, and by the way, after the Cubs, he went to the Reds for a couple of seasons, played for the Dodgers, and then and then when his playing days were over, he wanted to manage a big league club, but. He never got the chance. Why? I mean, after reading about him, it appears as if he had what it took to manage, but he never got that opportunity, at least not in the majors. I think he managed a little in the minors, but never got that opportunity in the majors. Why? Well, uh, he didn't. Uh, There are a number of of, of reasons why he might not have. Um, For starters, we could say he was never with the team for such a long time uh, where he simply moved from that team into a, uh, a managerial position. So he mm-hmm. wasn't with the team for his entire career, his post career, he simply goes and manages at that time, a class D league, uh, a class D team, or even a class C team. Um, so that might be one reason. And these are just, re- these are just suggestions that are, are typically tossed about. Now, when he retired, um, um, he did become a manager. Now, he went back uh, to the Southern Association where he had played, where he had his biggest success. 
Now, he went to uh, Chattanooga for the lookouts. He was there for three years, had some success in the Southern Association. He really enjoyed living down south. Let me add that. Um, so he had no qualms. Now, keep in mind that the lookouts were a class A team. This is just this is a step below double uh, A, which was the highest level at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had your two uh, uh, two double A leagues. Uh, the International League and the American Association. And then, of course, the Pacific Coast League. That's a a completely different uh, entity at that time. And so going into um, a Class A um, league was, in fact, quite an accomplishment. I'll add that. Keep in mind, there are also only 16 major league teams at this point. Right. He moves into... uh, into uh, a Cubs position as a coach in 1941, 42, 1943. This is during the war years. Um, he's still only in his early 40s at this point, mid-40s. He retires at age 40, uh, his active days. Um, and uh, and then he goes back uh, to the Southern Association in 1944. It has five very successful years with the Atlanta Crackers. Now, uh, you talk about a name that could not exist today, yeah. uh, would be the Atlanta Crackers. Yeah. A Negro League team was called the Black Crackers. Uh, so maybe just another little side digression about that. And he was uh, successful uh, uh, with the Crackers, and he goes to the Red Sox as a coach. And who's his manager uh, with the Red Sox in 49? None other than McCarthy. And uh, Tyler uh, Tyler dies, has a heart attack uh, at the age of 51. He'd only been out. He'd retired just 10 or 11 years earlier, has a blood clot um, in his leg, and that uh, leads to uh, uh, his ultimate death in, uh, at the age of 1951. So he died early. So it's hard to say, did he have some kind of deficiency and did that lead to a problem um, managed or any kind of uh, poor relationships with with other uh, with owners or with front office people? I would say, well, uh, there were a lot of things that simply conspired against them. You know, he. Playing during the war year, uh, he he managed. He was with the Cubs during the war years. There's not a lot of of change during baseball, at least from the, the managerial positions um, during the war years. Of course, there's a lot of change with with uh, baseball players and and four F players having to come in to replace literally the hundreds and hundreds of players who um, served uh, in the military. Um, would he eventually have become a manager? Why not? Uh, why not? I mean, McCarthy was old. He was suffering the effects of alcoholism um, in the late 1940s when he took over the Red Sox. Um, many say that maybe Kyler was being um, was being trained as an understudy mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Red Sox in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. That's hard to say. There are a lot of different a lot of different uh, lot of different reasons. But again, you know, when you die in, uh, when you die young like he did. Um, well, it was a little different. I would also say that managers in the 19 um, in the 1940s and 50s, and even before so, player managers were pretty common at that time. In the 1950s, player managers become less common. 
but managers in their 19 in their 50s and early 60s were quite common mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i hope that answers your question yeah yeah it does um, it does there's no definitive answer. No, no. I could say that there are a lot of, of, of great minor league managers who never got a uh, never got a shot. Sure. And were longtime minor league managers. Uh, you know, with only 16 major league teams, um, and really at the time, um, the American League and the National League were two separate entities, unlike today with major league baseball. Mm-hmm. And, and managers too they stayed in one league trades 99% I would venture to say although I don't have the statistics in front of you in front of me 99% of the trades existed within a league rarely were, were, were players traded from one league to the other think hmm. of them really as hmm. two separate entities hmm. not like today there wasn't the movement back and forth it's not like oh well I can't find a job with the Cubs. Let me go to another uh, to another league. Now, Kyler, of course, uh, shows that this isn't a head uh, a head pass rule because he goes to the American League Red Sox in 1949. But he has a sponsor there, his old manager, mm. Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was very well known as somebody who picked up his former players, who was really one who liked players that played for him, trusted him. And uh, Kyler uh, had, had McCarthy's trust. Interesting. Hey, Gregory, let me ask you this uh, question as well. During your research of Kai Kai Kyler, what was the most fascinating thing you learned about him? I guess I would say a few things. One, um, his incredible start in 1924 and in 1925. Um, the way the press and scouts compared him in 1924 and 25 and even much of 1926 to players like Joe Jackson, Tris Speaker, and Cobb and his batting aggressiveness to Hornsby, uh, I find that to be um, uh, really amazing because I didn't know that before I began my research about him. I find it to be startling uh, what happened in Pittsburgh in 1926 with the ABC affair. I find it unfathomable that a player like Kyler's with Kyler's ability could be uh, benched for, for almost two months and not played in the world series, a a catalyst on the team, especially Um, someone as good as he was. My gosh. And, and, and the way he, the way he came back with the Cubs um, and had these amazing seasons in, in 29 and 30 and 31. And then he suffers potentially career-threatening injuries in 1932 and in 1933. Um, he, he breaks a bone in his left foot in 32. He cracks a fibula in 1933. He's 33 and 34 years old. He almost, uh, these are injuries that, um, and he comes back in 1934, bats 338 at age 35, and again has another fantastic season um, in 1936 with the Reds. I find this to be, um, he was the oldest position player in the National League in 1936 with the Reds. And he bats 326, he's 37 years old. 37, mind you, 
in the 1930s might be a lot different than the way it was today. But he was a a consummate professional. He he stayed in shape. I think those are, are, uh, to me, the most fascinating things. Someone else might say, well, you know, he was at least peripherally involved in, you know, this sordid affair uh, with with Billy Jurgis and and Violet Valley uh, in 1932. Maybe just a word about that. Uh, uh, Violet Valley was a showgirl in Chicago, and 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 she shot Billy Jurgis, a young, good-looking uh, guy, because he was supposed he supposedly broke off this affair with uh, Violet Valley. Maybe not an important story, but it might be a little bit interesting. Anyway, the showgirl Violet Valley blames Kiki Kyler for having shot him. She blames Kyler that she shot Jurgis because Kyler told Jurgis he should stop having this sordid affair with the showgirl. So she blames Kyler uh, for leading her to shoot um, Jurgis. Now, he wasn't involved at all in the shooting or anything like that, but he's uh, at least involved in, in, in her account of the story. Hmm. Interesting. That might be more of a of a weird, uh, tangential, unimportant baseball story. Jurgis, by the way, came back that season, amazingly enough, hmm. and played. Well, Gregory, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. You are a wealth of knowledge. You've written so much, and I certainly hope you would consider coming back. Oh, I certainly would, Warren. I I think uh, we could communicate at some point. I have a few suggestions. Uh, maybe another player uh, that we could uh, discuss in the future it was awfully fun. I hope I wasn't stuttering around looking for no, you're um, fine. Looking for ideas and, and, and anecdotes and some stories to tell. Oh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I love these conversations. We could go on forever, but at some point we have to say, hey, it's time to wrap it up. I'm telling you, you're right. So once again, I'd like to thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to our next conversation. Good deal. You take care, my friend. Kai Kai was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Veterans Committee in 1968. For his career, he hit 321 with 128 home runs, 157 triples, 394 doubles, and he crossed the plate 1,305 times. The knock against Kyler, as Wolf said, was that he played in so few games, only 1,879 in 18 years. But in those games, Kai Kai was as aggressive as they came, and the guy could flat out hit. And the fact that baseball fans in Pittsburgh and Chicago cannot recall Kai Kai Kyler is actually pretty amazing. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to stick with baseball and take a look back at the career of the last man to play for the New York Giants, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the New York Yankees. A pitcher who is a part of three of the most memorable moments in the history of the game. Sal, the Barber Magley. That's next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks again to today's guest, Gregory Wolf, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. <laughs>